Greetings, everyone. This is Cody, and you're listening to Candace Firmus. Uh, you could be watching this on YouTube, or you could be listening to it uh, via the podcast Cantus Firmus, which can be found at www.cantus-firmus.com, or uh, by searching Cantus Firmus on iTunes. This is a presentation uh, that I was recently invited to give for a college apologetics class, and I wanted to try it out first here, and also share it with a broader audience as well. And to be sure that I don't get too jargony, I've invited my lovely wife, Raven, to sit in and interject, ask questions, that sort of thing. Say hello to the folks, Raven. Hello to the folks, Raven. I say it for that one. So I'm, I'm talking uh, about a specific kind of argument for the existence of God called the cosmological argument, and also about how skeptics have often responded to it, in particular uh, the 20th century uh, atheist, mathematician, philosopher Bertrand Russell. Though we speak of the cosmological argument, it's really a uh, more like a family of arguments which appeal to a first cause. For instance, one might make use of the Kalam cosmological argument, made popular in Islamic philosophy, but which has been championed in recent years by William Lane Craig. And it argues that everything which begins to exist has a cause. That's very, very kind of the linchpin of it. Everything which begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Other cosmological arguments focus on this idea of contingency. Uh, if something's contingent, that means it doesn't have to exist. Uh, and the universe is a contingent thing, and therefore requires a non-contingent or necessary thing to account for its existence. Making sense so far? Yeah. Okay. So, so Bertrand Russell, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in his essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, which was, by the way, enormously influential in atheistic intellectual circles in the last century, and was a, it was even name-checked in the recent Case for Christ movie, gives his own summary of the cosmological argument and his refutation of it. He summarized the argument in this way, quote, It is maintained that everything we see in this world has a cause, and as you go back in the chain of causes further and further, you must come to a first cause, and to that first cause you give the name of God. Russell's objection to this argument was one he cited from the autobiography of the utilitarian philosopher John Stuart Mill, and it was, quote, My father taught me that the question, who made me, cannot be answered, since it immediately suggests the further question, who made God, unquote. A similar line of reasoning is likewise picked up by Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, where he seizes on a different argument, the teleological argument's weighty challenge of apparent design in the universe, and retorts that, quote, the designer hypothesis immediately raises the larger problem of who designed the designer, end quote, and that when added to the explanatory power of evolutionary theory, one must conclude that, quote, God almost certainly does not exist, end quote. Uh, Russell similarly concluded, quote, if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. If there can be anything without a cause, it may just as well be the world as God, so that there cannot be any validity in that argument. There's no reason why the world could not have come into being without a cause, nor, on the other hand, is there any reason to suppose that the world had a beginning at all. The idea that things must have a beginning is really due to the poverty of our imagination. Now, that will make sense so far? You're looking at me like maybe it doesn't. No, it makes sense. What you're saying makes sense. I mean, in that it, it is coming across to the layperson. Okay. Um, not so much with the argument itself. Okay, so you're understanding. Okay, so 
So you're having trouble following what the, his argument is or what the cosmological I argument is? I understand what his argument is. I okay. just think it's dumb. <laughs> okay. Are you understanding what the cosmological argument is, at the very least, what we're talking about? So, like, there's the Kalam one, which just says anything which begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist. Yeah. Or this idea of contingency, the universe doesn't have to exist. So if it does exist, there has to be something that caused it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so that, that's 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 the basic idea. His argument is, well, why can't we just have a universe that pops out of nothing that for just no reason? Is. <laughs> yeah. Because that's no. <laughs> I mean, if he's satisfied with it, I guess that's good. But <laughs> well, that's what <laughs> that leaves no satisfaction for anybody else. Well, that's kind of what I want to get at because what's kind of interesting to me is this is a pretty influential argument or re- rejoinder to the cosmological argument. But I agree with you. I don't think it's very good, <laughs> and so. Um, the first thing that jumps out to me is, is I'm reading his description of the argument is that it's not really the argument, it's just him sort of summarizing what he thinks it's saying, which is rather simplistic compared to how philosophers have actually given the argument, as we'll see soon. For me, that's pretty important because I think it's important to always represent your opponent's arguments fairly and also not to let them get away with misrepresenting yours either. We can't have a real conversation if you say something and then I misrepresent what you're saying. Yeah, that's fair. But what he's really doing is he's giving a kind of parody of the argument which was famously made by Thomas Aquinas, um, which he called uh, his second way. Um, And this is how Aquinas gave it. And this is going to sound jargony, but I'm going to read the whole thing, then we'll, we'll go back. Quote, in the world of sense, we find there is an order of efficient causes. There is no case known, neither is it indeed possible, in which a thing is found to be the efficient cause of itself, for so it would be prior to itself, which is impossible. Now, in efficient causes, it is not possible to go on to infinity, because in all efficient causes, following an order, the first is the cause of the intermediate cause, and the intermediate is the cause of the ultimate cause, whether the intermediate cause be several or only one. Now, to take away the cause is to take away the effect. Therefore, if there be no first cause among efficient causes, there will be no ultimate, nor any intermediate cause. But if in efficient causes it is possible to go on to infinity, there will be no first efficient cause, neither will there be an ultimate effect, nor any intermediate efficient causes, all of which is plainly false. Therefore, it is necessary to admit a first efficient cause to which everyone gives the name of God. Wow. Maybe think of um, the Woody Allen movie, uh, Love and Death. Which part? Um, I think Diane Keaton is maybe quoting Sartre or somebody like that. And it's like this sort of long winding kind of existentialist thing or whatever. And, and Allen says, well, yeah, I said that many times myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first thing I'll say here is to try to maybe explain this. This idea of an efficient cause. He's going back to this, um, this idea that Aristotle had that there were four different kinds of causes. Um, so a material cause, a formal cause, um, a, um, an efficient cause, and a final cause. So, and they're all kind of interesting. So like the material cause would be like what something is made of constitutes its behavior. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that what it's made of causes it to be behave a certain way. Mm-hmm. The final cause is kind of interesting because it's, it's a little different. It's actually this notion that um, something is actually caused by its effect in a sense because it's... Um, it's made for a purpose. So, like, um, a boat, a cause of a boat is sailing. <laughs> because you want it to sail, that's what mm-hmm. you've made it for. So, in a sense, that's its cause. Okay. So, that's the final cause. So, that, that would be like, you know, if you're thinking about, like, why God made the universe, that would be the cause of the universe, the final cause of the universe. But the efficient cause is this kind of an agent who brings something about. 
So his argument is that when agents start, you know, you have this chain of causation, this thing does this, this thing does that, Mm -hmm. and eventually you have to go somewhere. That can't go on forever because that makes no sense. So in Aquinas' formulation, experience and reason tell us that the world is marked by these causal relationships wherein a former thing causes a latter thing. And it's absurd to imagine this relationship of causation going backward into eternity forever because this chain would then not have a starting point. And you can't get anywhere if you don't start first. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? I, I mean, I, I follow it. Yeah. I follow it. Okay. So without a starting point, we couldn't have ever reached a present state from the series of previous states. So imagine, for instance, you're running a race and you see the finish line. There's a finish line over here, but there's no starting point. You can't re- race begin the race if there's no place to begin it. Yeah. Which means you can't get to any point along the way. You mm-hmm. can't get to the finish line or whatever unless you have a starting point. Without a place to begin, one could never reach the end or any point along the way. Therefore, there must finally be one original first cause in order for our experience of cause and effect to make sense. Note that Aquinas is not claiming that everything has a cause, only that every effect must have a cause, going back to a first cause, which was it not, which was not itself caused. It was okay. not the effect of something else. Yeah. So that's, that's essentially what Aquinas was arguing. Now, if we go back to how Russell responded to it, We'll sort of see what what the problems here are. One problem with Russell's response is that he gives two alternatives to um, the cosmological argument. One of them is, well, maybe the universe is infinitely old. Russell actually gave us a reason to reject this idea uh, of an an eternally old universe in another essay he wrote, which was called um, Has Religion Made Useful Contributions to Society? where he points out that, quote, the second law of thermodynamics makes it scarcely possible to doubt that the universe is running down, and that ultimately nothing of the slightest interest will be possible anywhere, end quote. So if the universe is running down, we'll eventually reach a place where nothing can exist and nothing can happen. And if the universe is infinitely old, the universe would have already run down an infinite amount of time ago, meaning Russell couldn't have written his essay unless Russell would have been willing to admit that his work on the subject wasn't of, quote, the slightest interest, end quote, he shouldn't have argued in support of an eternally old universe. Add to this what we discussed earlier, that problem of infinite causation being incoherent, that you can't, you know, if you don't have a place to start, you can never get anywhere. The other option that he gives us, that the universe might have emerged out of nothing for no reason, is ridiculous. As philosopher Wayne Craig has quipped, such a solution is... Quote, worse than magic, end quote. Since at least with the magic, you have the magician in the hat. Russell's solution is akin to a rabbit appearing out of thin air for no reason. That such a solution is acceptable to atheists demonstrates, in my opinion, their desperation. If they have to have a universe appear out of nothing for no reason to avoid God, then so be it. If the universe came into existence, which I think it's obvious that it did, The only sensible cause is a timeless one if we're to pull ourselves out of a never-ending chain of causation. Agreed. So that is essentially what the cosmological argument is saying, and those are the problems with how Russell has tried to respond to it. Or those are some of the problems. You could actually multiply (laughs) responses as well. Yeah, I'm finding several things you could probably make points on. So that's it for the cosmological argument. This was a quick one. a lot of the stuff that uh, this material here is, is also in a book that I recently wrote called Post-Enlightened, Reflections on 200 Years of Anti-Christian Writing from Thomas Paine to Richard Dawkins. Uh, and if you're interested, you can get it um, in paperback and Kindle on Amazon.com. And I can also email you a free copy if you're interested. Just email me, Cody at Cantusfirmus.com. 
And while you're shooting me a message, if you, if you want to do that, go ahead and check out my website, www.cantus-firmus.com. You can check out my blog there, uh, other podcasts that I've done, and also other things that I've written. Is there anything that I should elucidate on there that, 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 make, that doesn't make sense? I'm always worried because this is the kind of thing I study a lot that if I'm talking about it, I might not be making sense of it for somebody. No, no. I mean, as somebody who knows nothing about this, I think I followed pretty successfully. Okay. Thank you for joining me. <laughs>